Welcome to another QuackCast, a skeptical and sarcastic evaluation of supplementary complementary alternative medicines, i.e. scams. This is brought to you as a side project of Pusware LLC, the publisher of the Persiflazer's Annotated Compendium of Infectious Disease, Facts, Opinion, and Dogma, your uber-hyperlinked electronic guide to infectious diseases, available at pusware.com, where you will also find the Persiflazer's podcast, a bi-monthly review of infectious diseases, now CME accredited. With that little bit of business out of the way, we are going to move on to today's topic, which is probiotics. I'm going to start this podcast with a warning. This will not be a relentless, sarcastic, and derisive rant that I prefer. This is a topic that requires some understanding of the fine shadings of data, and we'll see if I can handle it. Probably not. But I am an infectious disease doctor, and I spend most of my waking hours thinking about bacteria and patients infected with them. So this will probably be wordier than usual. People go into infectious diseases because they love the sound of their own voice. And there is some, albeit weak, supportive data for probiotics. So this is not the usual, boy, is this stupid kind of podcast that I so prefer doing. What got me going down this path was the Dan and Yogurt ads for Dan Active, a probiotic drink that allegedly improves your immune system, among other things. The result of researching those commercials is this podcast. Now, I give antibiotics for a living, antibiotics, so I'm against life. An antibiotic sounds like some sort of supervillain in a comic book. There are, as a matter of terminology, probiotics, the focus of this podcast. These are, of course, the opposite of amateur biotics, them what don't get paid. Probiotics are supposedly, quote, friendly, end quote, bacteria in yeast and are purported to have a variety of beneficial effects that this podcast will delve into in various details. In addition to probiotics, there are prebiotics, which are substances that, w- that are fundamentally unedible, like raw oats and unrefined wheat, that are supposed to promote a healthy intestinal bacterial flora. And if you eat your probiotics with your prebiotics, you get synbiotics. Unfortunately, that's spelled S-Y-N, not S-I-N. If it were synbiotics with an I, that would be a lot more fun. There are other definitions of synbiotics as metabolites produced by gut organisms, but this podcast is going to focus on probiotics. But before we talk about taking extra bacteria, I think you need to know your baseline. What's the normal bacteria of your colon? What is your personal microbiology? Let me tell you, you think you're so cool, Ms. Pinnacle of Evolution, or perhaps Divine Creation. Just so you know, there are 10 to 100 times more bacterial and yeast cells on you and in you than there are cells of you. You think you are fabulous with your opposable thumbs that allow you to tie your shoes, but when you're putting your Nikes on to go to 7-Eleven for that bag of chips, it's so you can act as a highly evolved bacterial public transport and food delivery system. It also turns out that while 4% of your genome codes for you, 8% codes for viruses that have inserted themselves into your DNA and have lost the ability to get out. The rest of your DNA, of course, is so-called junk DNA. But there are 100 times more bacterial genes in you than the genes that make up you. So what are you really? You are an advanced habitat for microorganisms. In fact, to carry the metaphor further, 
and it really isn't a metaphor, you are a tropical rainforest, and each part of your body is a niche or a potential niche for any number of bugs. Now, you were born, of course, sterile, although not enough people maintain that state to judge from the world population. But the world is covered with microorganisms, and within weeks of being born, you acquire a rich and varied bacterial carpet that covers you inside and out. Where does it come from? Your mom, mostly, and your dad, and your environment. And every day, you eat a small amount of stool bacteria. I have recently received an email but cannot confirm that if you drink the average amount of water, you get a kilogram of E. coli, a common bowel organism, each year alone. And that's not to mention what's on your salad. Take your mouth, for example. This is teeming with bacteria, even if your oral hygiene is excellent. There are a variety of streptococci that live in different parts of your mouth. One prefers the cheek, another prefers the tonsils, another under your tongue, and so on. And if you let old food fester in your mouth, you will acquire a whole new set of bacteria that will take advantage of rotting food and putrid teeth in flourish. You are somewhat what you eat, because in part what you eat will determine your bacteria. Often, what bacteria you find in part is attributable to how they bind to local tissues. If a bacteria can't stick to you, it can't grow. So, for example, E. coli have proteins that make them able to adhere very nicely to your bladder to cause urinary tract infections, and gonorrhea has proteins that are particularly good at sticking to the cells that line your urethra. Handy that. You know the old saying, a place for everything and everything in this place? Well, for bacteria, that's your urethra in your colon. Now let's take your colon, especially your colon. This is a particularly complex environment. There are hundreds of species of bacteria, 99.9% .9 of which are anaerobes. In fact, every gram of stool, and a gram is not all that heavy, has 10 to the 11 anaerobes. That's 100 billion per gram of poo. This may surprise you, but your rectum is not a particularly hospitable place, and there's not a lot of oxygen there. So organisms that thrive in an oxygen-low or deficient place are called anaerobes, or to some extent microaerophilic organisms, and these are the organisms that predominate and thrive in your colon. Gerbils, well, they don't do so well. And the predominant anaerobe is not lactobacillus, which they're always having you take, but bacteroides species. Now, aerobes, those organisms that require oxygen, like E. coli, only make up about 0.1% of your stool, or about 10 to the 5 to 10 to the 7th per gram of stool. That's about 10,000 to a million organisms per gram. And that's just the bugs we know, because it is estimated that you cannot grow about 80% of the organisms in your colon. By the way, for you metrically challenged, one teaspoon is about five grams, and I found out that the U.S. dollar bill weighs about a gram. So imagine a dollar bill size smear of poo. That's a hundred billion bacteria. And for the female genital tract, lactobacillus do predominate. Balfour also is inhabited by bifidobacterium and lactobacillus, and these are the two most common organisms found in probiotics. These bugs are very minor constituents of bowel flora, but since they live on the lining of the bowel along with the eubacterium and the propionobacterium, they may have more beneficial effects. Now, the normal bacterial flora is important, and it's important in several ways. One is they just block out potential pathogens. If your gut is lined with 
low virulence organism, there's no place for more virulent organisms, such as the causes of diarrhea, to bind and cause diseases. Overgrowth syndromes are an important complication of antibiotics and other therapies and diseases. So if you wipe out all the normal bacteria, this does free up some ecological niches and bacteria or yeast will grow like blackberries in the resultant ecological niche. You are nothing but applied Darwinism. And examples abound in this. For example, if you get a lot of antibiotics, you may get yeast in your mouth, thrush. Or you may get C. difficile diarrhea after antibiotics, a particularly difficult and hard-to-treat form of infectious diarrhea. The normal flora is important to prevent bad bugs from binding. Normal flora is also important, if for no other reason, is it fills up space. And that's probably the predominant reason. But wait, there's more. Microorganisms do more than fill up a space doing nothing active, like George Bush in the National Guard. I really tried here for a Nancy Pelosi metaphor, but I just couldn't come up with one. Sorry, didn't work. Bugs, good, bad, and indifferent, are more than animate placeholders. They have been co-evolving with us for somewhere between 6,000, depending on your background, and 6 million years. Genetic analysis, for example, shows that H. pylori, a cause of stomach ulcers, came out of Africa with us 6,000 years ago. And the evidence shows that head lice have been with us for 1.6 million years. None of us are truly alone. And after death, we will be consumed by the microbiology that we have carried with us back into the depths of time. Gives a warm place in my heart to think about that. But during that time, bacteria have picked up some of the biochemical slack. Besides mitochondria, which has taken over the basic oxidative metabolism, microorganisms can make vitamin K, they can help with digestion, they can help with absorption of food. And most importantly, at least from the perspective of my 10-year-old, bacteria are responsible for much of the gas and smell of flatulence. So next time you ask someone to pull your finger, remember, it's the bacteria that are doing that. But disturbing normal flora from antibiotics or illness can lead to a variety of biochemical dysfunctions. Whether it leads to less farting or not, I do not yet know, and I haven't done that clinical study. But like the rainforest, like the planet Earth itself, you mess with an ecological niche, there are going to be consequences. I mention all this to note that there is good biologic plausibility for probiotics. You take in organisms to fill up ecological niches that are less virulent than other organisms. However, the devil in this podcast is in the details. But that's the reason for probiotics. Normal bacteria gone, depleted, tuckered out. Take some extra bacteria and replete your ecosystem. Now, despite the complexity of the GI microenvironment, probiotics contain just a few bacteria, and they're not even the most common bowel organisms. But this is probably just as well, because who really wants to take poo pills anyway? Now, bacteria have two names, a first name and a second name, like Staphylococcus aureus or Staphylococcus saprophyticus. Now, most of the time, just the first name is used. But within species of organisms, the effects, both good and bad, can vary greatly. A Staph lugdunensis is not the same as a Staph aureus or a Staph epidermidis, although people will often just refer to them as Staph, or they will refer to them sloppily as Lactobacillus. But all Lactobacillus are not the same, as we shall see. Now, most probiotics 
are bacteria of the species Bifidobacterium and Lactobacillus. And some also have Saccharomyces boyardii in it, which is found chiefly in products of Chef Boyardii. I cannot and will not resist a stupid pun. But it's safe to say that the, quote, good bacteria that are so highly touted in probiotics are but a minor constituent of a complex flora. Now, to continue with the metaphor, if you burn down a forest, it's probably better to repopulate it with a monoculture of corn than it is to let it erode away. But at best, probiotics represent substituting a complex rainforest with a monoculture of corn. Now, here are some fine points, and the devil is always in the details. Lactobacillus in yogurt is not necessarily the lactobacillus found in probiotic pills. Yogurt is usually Lactobacillus acidophilus or Lactobacillus bulgaricus. Yogurt bacteria, which are used to curdle milk, are usually different than probiotics, which often contain L-casei, i.e. Lactobacillus casei, L-planarium, L-ruteri, L-raminosis, and L-CG. Now, the lactobacillus found in probiotics is not necessarily the same lactobacillus that's found in you. Your colonic lactobacillus varies from person to person and may not be the same ones you're eating. For example, lactobacillus crispitus and lactobacillus cincinii are the lactobacilluses, or is it lactobacilli, elvis, elvi, lactobacillus, lactobacilli, that predominate in the vagina. So the ones you're eating are not necessarily the same ones that you normally have. The same is true of the bifidobacterium that are found in probiotics. There are many strains of bifidobacterium, only a fraction of which are found in probiotics. Saccharomyces boyardii is also not part of your normal flora. Now, I don't want to say anything bad about Saccharomyces. That is my favorite yeast, being responsible for both bread and beer. True story, years ago I had an AIDS patient who was a brewer, a home brewer, and he had Saccharomyces in his blood. This is the Saccharomyces used for beer, and I always knew what ailed him. Thank you, thank you. I'll be here all week. Try the prime rib, and don't forget to tip your waitress. Now, curiously, what is on the label of your probiotic may not be in the bottle. There have been several studies that have looked at the label and then tried to see what's actually in them and found not only were the organisms in the probiotic tablets misidentified, much of the time they also found that the organisms were not viable, i.e. they were dead, and organisms not mentioned on the label, like Enterococcus, were found in these tablets as well. As the ancient Romans said, Dick Cavett is emperor, or something like that. But the point is, you need to know that what you think you're getting is not what's in some of these products. Next, probiotics, not being part of the normal flora, are rapidly cleared if you stop eating the probiotic. They are not normal flora and will often not persist unless you keep eating them. If you stop planting corn, the forest eventually returns. And the truth of the matter is you're always consuming fecal flora in the food you eat and the water you drink. Well, maybe you are. I eat only fried food. But the food in the world is covered in the thin patina of food, and so you are always repleting your bacterial flora normally. Bon appetit. 
And as discussed in the prior podcast, as dietary supplements, there is essentially zero oversight on these products. So you may not get what you're paying for. As P.T. Barnum said, blah, 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 pithy atherism, blah, blah, blah. But I think when it comes to scams, Lincoln got it wrong. You can fool most of the people most of the time. So, with that as the norm of your colon and probiotics, let's now go over several areas that are touted to be beneficial with probiotics. The treatment and prevention of diarrhea, the treatment and prevention of yeast infections, and boosting the immune system. Arg, it burns! The immune system cannot be boosted, but we'll have to talk about that. Now, normally I like to go into the medical literature in gruesome detail, but that's not going to be the case in this podcast, as if you use probiotics as a search criteria, you get about 3,600 plus PubMed references. Now, I've read a good chunk of the clinical trials, but not all of them, and I would have to read 10 articles a day for a year to read the literature. So if I missed your pet study or reference, let me know. But this is sort of the best take I can do, given the time limits of life. So, prevention of diarrhea. Now, there are three kinds of diarrhea in the literature for which probiotics have been tried. There's antibiotic-associated diarrhea, the baby food stools everybody gets when they take antibiotics. There's Clostridium difficile diarrhea, a particularly nasty overgrowth diarrhea that can be fatal. And then there's traveler's diarrhea, the Hershey squirts you get when you're exposed to a new strain of E. coli when you go to a country whose water supply has its own unique stool organisms. Lest we make fun of Torista in Mexico, remember that Mexicans get Torista when they come to this country. The studies are all hard to compare. as There are different formulations of probiotics are used, and there are different host and antibiotic variations used. And I think it's safe to say that the data to date is not as definitive as one would like, but it's certainly suggestive. For antibiotic-associated diarrhea, it's estimated that probiotics, usually in this case a lactobacillus, will decrease the duration and the severity of diarrhea. In one study in children, it's estimated that for every seven who developed an antibiotic-associated diarrhea, one less would get it if they got probiotics. Not a great result, and not too surprising either that most of the antibiotics you give are going to kill off the organisms and the probiotics as fast as you could give them. But there is data, reasonable data, small numbers of patients, small studies, to suggest that if you have antibiotic-associated diarrhea, you get better, faster if you take a probiotic, and you'll get less reading done as a consequence. The data for Clostridium difficile diarrhea is not as good, and of all the organisms tried, the only one that's shown some efficacy is Saccharomyces boyardii. Unfortunately, most of the case reports of patients who have Saccharomyces boyardii in the blood are those who are getting treated for C. difficile with this yeast. So, no good deed ever goes unpunished. For traveler's diarrhea, some studies show benefit, some do not. A meta-analysis for all their faults have shown benefit for lactobacillus and Saccharomyces as well as mixed preparations to prevent Tourista. Given the variability in these studies, it's not surprising there are variable results, but I think the bulk of data suggests that you do get some mild effect from taking probiotics when you have diarrhea. I think the best proof of concept of probiotics was a study in the clinical infectious diseases 
where they had 15 patients with C. difficile diarrhea that was not responding to antibiotics. And they gave these patients what they delicately referred to as a stool transplant. Yep, that's what they did. They took the poo from the patient's spouse, put it in a blender, and put it right in their gut by dripping it down a nasogastric tube. It cured all the patients but one. I gag every time I mention this, and while I'm not recommending corporophagia, I say when it came to probiotic for the prevention and treatment of diarrhea, the closer your probiotics are to real feces, the better they will probably be. This literature also contains one of the stupidest articles ever published in a major journal. In Clinical Infectious Diseases, they published what they call a, quote, major article, unquote, when they demonstrated that dead lactobacillus did not prevent traveler's diarrhea. Again, note that the lactobacilli were dead. They used dead organisms out of fear of causing illness from giving to live organisms. But I think we already have a term for ingesting dead organisms. It's called food. Why this study was funded, much less published in a major medical journal, eludes me. I think it's one of the stupidest things ever published in a journal article. It's like treating infections with antibiotics after you boiled them and inactivated them. I mean, it is really stupid. So overall, when it comes to the prevention and treatment of diarrhea, there's a lot of suggestive but not definitive data. Which type of diarrhea, which preparations of probiotics are best used for treating or preventing diarrhea is not clear. So I cannot completely poo-poo the data. And I think overall the effects in the treatment and prevention of diarrhea are minor but real and probably do have some benefit. It would be nice, however, if we truly had good clinical trials to show the efficacy or lack of efficacy of these agents for very specific diarrheal illnesses. Well, how's about for vaginitis? Well, there's, again, two kinds of vaginal infections. There's yeast vaginitis and bacterial vaginitis. Again, there is biologic plausibility, especially since lactobacillus do predominate in the vagina, and they can either mechanically block candida, or they can also make the local microenvironment inhospitable to yeasts, as multiple in vitro, i.e. test tube experiments, have demonstrated. However, there is always a problem taking test tube results to human beings. When it comes to Canada vaginitis, the most cited reference in the best journal was in the Annals of Internal Medicine, where they had women who had recurrent Canada vaginal infections, and they were to take yogurt, 8 ounces a day. And they found a decrease in Canada colonization and a threefold decrease in Canada vaginitis when they took 8 ounces of yogurt a day. Now, this study is interesting in that when they started, they had a whopping 33 patients in the trial, and by the end of the trial, had a mere 13 patients who completed the protocol. Eight patients refused to go into the placebo wing of this trial because they thought the yogurt was working. But 13 patients finishing a trial is more of a suggestive series of case reports than a definitive clinical trial. And for Canada vaginitis, this is the best study we have. For bacterial vaginitis, the best and most recent study was in Nigeria, where they used intravaginal lactobacillus and cured 90% of women with bacterial vaginitis. There were a whopping 40 people in this study, 20 of whom received lactobacillus. And so it goes. Small suggestive studies, but nothing definitive. 
to quote from a recent meta-analysis, here comes a long quote, the results of some clinical trials support the effectiveness of lactobacilli dot 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 either orally or intravaginally in colonizing the vagina or and or preventing colonization and infection of the vagina by Canada albicans. While the results of a small number of clinical trials do not collaborate these findings. Nevertheless, most of the relevant clinical trials had methodological problems such as small sample size, no control group, and included women without re confirmed recurrent vulvovaginal candidiasis, and they are not reliable for drawing definitive conclusions. Thus, the available evidence for the use of probiotics is limited. Suggestive? Yep. Plausible? Yep. Do I suggest it for my patients? With a lot of qualifiers and caveats and a distinct lack of enthusiasm, because personally, I hate yogurt. There are a variety of other diseases where use of probiotics has been suggested to be of benefit, including managing lactose intolerance, prevention of colon cancer, lowering cholesterol and blood pressure, reducing inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel disease, and atopic dermatitis. These studies are really unenthusiastic as to their outcomes. And as we always say in the medical literature, more studies need to be done, blah, blah, blah. But how's about the immune system? Does yogurt and probiotics improve immune function? Now, let me say at the beginning that there is a difference between overgrowth symptoms, where normal flora is depleted and a pathogen like yeast overgrows, and having something wrong with the immune system. Overgrowth syndromes have little, if anything, to do with the function of the immune system. It is a matter, as I keep saying, of freeing up ecological niches. So let's talk about enhancing the immune system with good bacteria. Now, according to the folks at Dannon, 70% of your immune system is in the gut. True enough, there are really only three major ways that people routinely acquire infections, sex, inhaling, and eating. And through most of time, the food supply was not the cleanest, so it is not surprising that a large part of the immune system lines the gut. It prevents the normal flora from getting into the bloodstream, a problem in patients whose immune system are whacked from chemotherapy, and provides a first line of defense against ingested bacteria and toxins. Fine, we got a lot of immune system in the gut. So, how does this go about strengthening your immune system? It is curious that the data for this is contradictory because some of the purported effects of probiotics, such as improving inflammatory bowel disease, are supposed to be due to decreasing immune function, such as depressing cytokines, which are proteins that cause inflammation, while other effects are supposed to be due to increasing immune function, such as increasing local antibody production and increasing local T-cell populations. There are in vitro, i.e. test tube, animal and human studies that show a wide-ranging effects of the immune system. But guess what? That's what's supposed to happen. Anytime you take large quantities of a living organism that is not part of your normal flora, your immune system is going to take notice and react. The immune system reacts to anything it sees as foreign. Now, I'm going to limit this discussion to Dan Active, a product by Danon, 
with a bacteria they have, Lactobacillus casei. They have a trademarked name for their strain, Lactobacillus casei immutatus. The immutatus part is trademarked, so I will not speak its name again. I will refer to it as L. casei voldemartis. So they say that each bottle of their product has 10 billion live bacteria. Well, colony count-wise, it's like eating a gram of stool. But normally you don't eat 10 to the 10th live organisms. Well, maybe you do if you're a vegan who doesn't cook your food, but I deep fry all my food, so I'm not getting 10 to the billion live bacteria in my diet. Now, what does this do for your immune system? Well, not much in terms of strengthening. They make a big deal out of strengthening the immune system, but the data they supply on their website is slick, but almost substance-free in their scientific summary that they give to medical providers. For example, the website says, one, quote, consumption of yogurt containing LKCI during 30 days resulted in a significant increase in the percentage of children with a concentration of lactobacillus greater than six log CFUs per gram of feces. Now, this must have been fun to do, collecting kids' stool and seeing how much lactobacillus they had in it. But basically what they're saying is if you eat a lot of lactobacillus, you will get a lot of lactobacillus coming out the other end. Big surprise. Is this good? Who knows? Again, you're trying to replace a complex floor with a monoculture of, quote, good bacteria, but they say it's good, but you really can't find data to suggest that supplanting your normal flora with the lactobacillus in Dan Active is a good thing. Now, they say that it does this by making the lining of your bowels stronger. As they say, quote, LKCI stimulated DNA synthesis and CAMP production in cultured intestinal epithelial cells, indicating increased proliferation in cell activity. So if you dump a bunch of bacteria in a cell culture, they will grow. I think that's also called cancer, isn't it? Well, not really, but why is this good? They can't say. Extrapolating that test tube activation of endothelial cells will improve your bowel integrity is a real stretch. And finally, what's the data they have to suggest that Dan Active may increase your immune system? Well, here's the study, and I quote, Dan Active may modulate the innate immune cellular response by reducing the depression of natural killer cell concentration during intense physical exercise. That's it. That's enhancing the immune system. What they did here is they looked at 13 parameters in 25 athletes whose natural killer cells decrease with exercise. For the first month, they took milk and they exercised them and saw how much their natural killer cells went down. Then they took lactobacillus for a month and they found one parameter that decreased less when they were taking lactobacillus. They Milk had a 5% decrease in their natural killer cells after exercise, whereas those who were on a lactobacillus diet had a 3% decrease in their natural killer cells. Whoa, a whole 2% difference. While it was statistically significant, I would strongly doubt that it is important in any way. They had no good controls. Each patient was serving as their own control. And this is the basis of the immune enhancement of Dan Active. That's crap. Now, if you would do a medline on LKCI and other lactobacillus, you can find a variety of effects on the immune system. 
a wide variety of immunomodulatory effects are reported from probiotics. Now here's the secret. If you flood any animal with any bug, you will get the same response. For example, if you force feed an animal Canada albicans, which is more of a pathogen, you will get an inflammatory response. If you give an animal or cells in culture a large bolus of bacteria, you get immunomodulation. Some systems you turn off, some systems you turn on, depending on which part of the immune system you're measuring and what pathogen you are testing. In fact, if you pre-treat an animal with one bug and you give it a subsequent different bug to infect it, they will tolerate it better. Same with cancer. If you prime the immune system beforehand, you get a better host response with a subsequent infection. What they refer to in the lactobacillus and probiotic literature as enhancing or the strengthening the immune system, I call an inflammatory response. As best I can tell, this is just spin. They are calling the normal response to pathogens or to relative non-pathogens in the case of lactobacillus immune enhancement, which I would call inflammation, and I think this is clever advertising. Now, there is an interesting literature on the importance of chronic inflammation in vascular disease. For example, the New England Journal of Medicine had a recent article on how chronic periodontitis leads to endothelial cell activation. Endothelial cells are those that line your arteries. And this may account for the long-known association between having gum disease and having heart attacks. The cardiology literature is filled with epidemiologic studies correlating chronic inflammation with heart attacks. Chronic inflammation, which is what you should get if you were taking 10 billion extra live bacteria a day, may not be such a good idea. The other interesting feature of infections is that after inflammation comes anti-inflammation. For every action, there is an opposite, and with the immune system, a sometimes excessive reaction is the body tries to get back to baseline equivalent. Patients with severe infections, if they survive the acute inflammation in the next month, often have an overcompensated anti-inflammation, which increases their risk for acquiring new infections and perhaps increases their risk for thrombosis. And so I would make two predictions about chronic probiotics. One, population studies will show an increased risk of heart attack and strokes, and maybe pulmonary embolism as well, which is where blood clots go to the lung and risk of pulmonary embolism goes up for a year after having pneumonia. Other prediction, infections will increase in the month or two after stopping chronic probiotics. So, if there are any budding epidemiologists out there, feel free to run with this idea. Personally, I think you should leave well enough alone. We have six million years of evolving with our bowel flora and are probably at a pretty good set point. And if you are healthy, your bacteria does not need any alterations. High concentrations of lactobacilli are not normal, and I would predict in population studies you would find adverse consequences. I'm one wordy bastard, that's for sure. But we're getting to the end of this. Are there complications from probiotics? Yeah, they're rare. The most problematic are when they are being used to treat acute inflammatory diarrhea. If you have a bacillary diarrhea like C. difficile or Shigella, you can get an impressively inflamed colon. If you were to run a camera up there, you would see a red, raw, oozing colon. Now, intact bowel is an important barrier to infection, just like intact skin. 
most people would probably be disinclined to rub large numbers of living bacteria or yeast into a raw, oozing, macerated wound on their arm. One would think this is a bad idea, and you could get microorganisms into the bloodstream that way. Well, that's just what happens with probiotics. Almost all the fungemias due to Saccharomyces boiardii occur when they are given to treat inflammatory diarrhea. While it is rare, if you give people a large oral bolus of live bacteria when they have no immunity and their gut looks like the equivalent of road rash, expect the occasional organism to get into the bloodstream. This should not come to a surprise of anyone who's an infectious disease doctor. And you can see the same effect in normal animals if you give them a large oral inoculation of relatively non-pathogenic organisms. You can overwhelm local defenses and get a bloodstream infections. Now, my career is based on treating weird infections in people, so I have a bias against the possibility of giving a patient an infection they don't already have. And personally, I've seen two cases of Saccharomyces boiardii fungemia in patients receiving this yeast for the treatment of Clostridium difficile diarrhea. Medical literature to date doesn't find similar issues to the same degree with lactobacillus. Population studies have not found an increase of lactobacillus in the blood, but there are a few case reports of people with either severe mechanical or immunologic problems taking probiotics containing lactobacillus and getting the same lactobacillus in their bloodstream. For example, an AIDS patient with lymphoma. If you are taking large amounts of a live bacteria under this, these circumstances, that may not be the best idea. So depending on the host, taking probiotics may not be the best thing to do. So my take, a summary, based on the data to date, probiotics are way overhyped. They probably are beneficial in the treatment and prevention of diarrhea. They do have some scientific plausibility. And the closer you get to eating real stool, the better. The worse your gut, the worse your immunity, the less sanguine I would be about taking large quantities of live bacteria or yeast, unless, of course, you want to keep your infectious disease doctor employed by getting some yeast in your bloodstream. Canada vaginitis and bacterial vaginosis? Maybe. Certainly plausible. Would love a definitive study. I am more inclined to suggest them as a prophylactic than as a treatment, and then with little enthusiasm. My bias after 25 years in medicine is that no good deed ever goes unpunished, and I am increasingly inclined to doing less than more for people. Enhance your immune system? Please, no such thing. So that's it. The literature on this topic is huge, and the best way to find information is to go to PubMed and enter your search data. Some of the references are on my website. If you like this, go to iTunes. Give me a good review. This is brought to you by uh, Pusswear.com, where you will find the Persiflazers podcast, a bi-monthly review of infectious diseases where you can even get type 1 CME. This is copyright 2006, Creative Commons. Send your hate mail, spam, and questions to quackery at knowitall at quackcast.com. I doubt I will ever publish your emails on my website unless they're particularly nasty. Feedback is always of great interest, and I wouldn't mind being accused of being a total tool of the medical industrial complex if you also gave me some good feedback. The music is by my son when he was 12, improvising on the guitar. Now, thank you for listening, and if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go drink some Widmere Hefeweizen 
the best source I know of for probiotics. Bon appetit.